This week on FX Guide TV. We're at IBC covering the first ever Flame Awards and getting a sneak peek at the new Flame 2014 release. Hello, I'm Angie Dale and welcome to another FX Guide TV. We have a cracker of a show for you this week as Johnny's in Europe for IBC and it's a very special anniversary that he's helping to celebrate and mark. But I'll let John explain. Well, thanks for that, Angie. Yes, it's the anniversary of the anniversary release here on Flame. Uh, we're going to be covering the Flame 2014 release. I recently visited Montreal to catch up with Philippe Soero about the new things they have coming out this fall. But I'm here at Amsterdam on IBC to help present the first ever Flame Award designed to actually honor the artistry and contributions community by a single Flame user. Now, I was part of the advisory board, and I gotta say, it's a next to impossible situation to pick one person. And so, we kind of actually didn't pick one person. There is one Flame Award winner, but we do have a variety of special recognition awards that we felt were deserved from the nominees, including our own Mike Seymour, who's partners, of course, with myself and Jeff Huser here at Effects Guide. Really great uh, to see him get an award. Congratulations, Mike. But anyway, we're here to celebrate the main Flame Award winner, main Flame Award winner, and that was Vico Sherbani, who's a longtime flame, art, flame artist, has shared tips and tricks at things like Seagraph, our own FX Guide live events, and we caught up with Vico to find out what it was like to win an award with so many great artists in the field. It's people that I looked up to for so many years, and I've uh, actually um, uh, was inspired to do things. Uh, better because of seeing their work. I uh, inspired, uh, was inspired to share my work and experience and developments uh, throughout the years. Uh, it's very, very exciting, you know, like everything from what it means to the imagery that came back from uh, the 90s. Um, definitely a very, very exciting time to, to get that type of a recognition. Uh, very humbling, um, a very um, I'm, I'm speechless as we can see. Again, a great event, and I was very much honored to be asked to be part of the Flame Advisory Panel for this, as well as speak at the event. But what we wanted to do now is cross to our interview with Philippe Serrero. We caught up with him last week in Montreal to find out what's new in the release. 2014, I think, is, um, is for us uh, what I would refer to as an um, architectural milestone. Um, it's obviously part of like a, a, a bigger plan. Uh, that we've had for some time to actually really integrate a different type of rendering pipeline across the entire application. And in this particular um, release, one of the goals for us was to really plug a, the, the batch processing pipeline directly into the timeline. And this actually, as a consequence, changes a lot of things about how the timeline operates. And the reason why I would refer to it as a milestone is because it opens up a number of doors that, um, and perspectives for the future uh, that uh, are very important to us. So first of all, the timeline becomes capable of rendering things on the fly, which it never has been in the past. It's also a lot more efficient at rendering things when you just hit render instead of really going through the sandwich of different layers and storing a vast number of frames onto the frame store if you know the more complex the timeline i mean those days are kind of over 
Um, it also brings things that are, I think, really important. It's uh, uh, a complete um, uniformity uh, in terms of how we deal with floating point, how we deal with blend modes, how we deal with tools in general, um, and creates, uh, I think, an equivalence between something that is either represented in the form of a flow graph, represented in the form of an editorial structure, which can be as simple as a shot, okay? Uh, or a clip sitting on the desktop. All of these things become different equivalent from a data set um, uh, model, uh, but they are very different representations over the same data set, and some of them can be a lot more suitable to solve some problems. Flowgraph is very good to deal with very complex, um, I guess, uh, ideas and leaving a trace of flow graph, editorial and a timeline is very good at dealing with very fast, interactive, creative thoughts, um, hence it being so powerful in the context also of a grading application. And that's a hint, by the way. Um, and obviously, I mean, people are already familiar with the advantages of actually showing something as a clip inside of a desktop representation and being able to deal with something that's very hybrid between kind of like a small player and something that's a film strip. So all of those things now become finally really equivalent, which they weren't in the past. I don't want to minimize the amount of effort that it took to do the workflow changes or frankly the benefit to us as users. But the reality is, is as you're doing that and making those architectural changes, your competitors are out there creating new creative tools. How do you balance that in the development process, this balancing act between the infrastructure or plumbing of the software versus spending it on creative tools? Uh, well, clearly we've had some very tough choices to make. And, and I guess in the context of the workflow overhaul that, uh, that happened with 20th anniversary, it's very clear that the emphasis was on actually uh, dealing with that. And of course, as a, as a consequence, some of the work that we've, uh, we, we had been, uh, we have been doing, had to, uh, more like on creative features, had to be shelved temporarily. But I don't want people to think that we've dropped the ball uh, at all. Uh, that's, that's not the case. Um, it so happens that now we absolutely need to focus on making sure that the workflow is, um, is responding to, the, I guess, the expectation of everyone, uh, making sure that if there are any things that are stopping people also from you know, jumping into the new workflow, we solve these uh, as quickly as possible. So that's kind of really, it's been our focus lately, the, uh, very much so. But I think we're, we're reaching this turning point where uh, even though the architectural changes are going to be an ongoing process, there's a whole bunch of things that we still have on our radar. It's not necessarily going to monopolize as many people uh, to move forward. And, uh, and this is kind of like an interesting turning point where resources are, are gradually being reallocated on things that are not necessarily architectural endeavors, uh, but more on, on, on creative tools, um, technical tools also, I mean, things that, uh, that I think are, are um, we wanted to do for a long time and are gradually going to be introduced into the application in future releases. So the stuff that we did on the extended by cubics, the perspective surfaces are just a sign of the fact that we, we are gradually reallocating resources and, 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 and building teams that will focus primarily on creative tools in the large sense. We bring those up, so now it's a good time. Let's go ahead and cross over and take a look at those new creative tools. So um, here we're in uh, Batch, and we'll just take a look at this uh, clip here where we have uh, a uh, 
flying over uh, uh, this particular shot. And uh, for this example, what we'll show here is that we'll um, just uh, do a clean frame here where we will remove uh, the uh, road uh, in this shot. And of course, it's just a single frame. Um, with the idea here that uh, you know that we're going to freeze, and remember that the Mux node actually has this button that instantly freezes a frame um, that we introduced a, a while back. And so uh, back in action, what I'm going to do is actually uh, represent uh, the uh, uh, this frame here, which is the first one, as an extended by cubic. And uh, uh, you'll see now that uh, what happens is that every single surface inside of action now has a view which uh, which is the F8 view, the object view, which in the context of extended by cubics now uh, show UVs. And here I switch to a mode which essentially allows me to synchronize manipulations on the actual vertices of the extended by cubic uh, uh, and synchronize that with the manipulation on the UV. So as you see, everything that I do on the vertices is actually reflected on the UVs in the F8 view that you're seeing here on the left. And so I'm as, as I'm adjusting here, because I'm making modifications to uh, both of them, I'm actually not generating any kind of deformation. As you see, uh, everything is pretty much overlapped. And as I move around, of course, you see here that uh, this is a frozen frame, so I have nothing. So the thing that we have just introduced is the ability to select a bunch of vertices and actually enter the stabilizer with a selection of vertices. And as you see, the minute that I enter with uh, the each point option, we'll see the other point here, I'm going to switch to a very handy mode that we're introducing here, which is offset reference that actually allows me to say here, I want, I want the tracking information to be where it was located, but track this particular feature because this is going to help me deal with things that are too much on the edge. And like, for example, here, the offset mode is also very handy when it comes to actually stop the analysis because something is moving out of the picture and just uh, uh, readjust and generate an actual continuous stream of tracking information. Um, this so, is, I got to say, this is a, working with this is a major change, a really game changer when you're working with the stabilizer now. Yes, and actually, it's, uh, I should point out actually that it's actually available in every instance of, of, of the stabilizer in the application. And as you see, as we exit back from, from action now, we actually have the vertices that are uh, tracking correctly. Now, obviously, the, the, the set of points here, I, I left them out because they're really at the border of the image. So I want to deal with them in a different way. And I enter this time the tracker uh, in all transforms mode. And what, th what this will allow me to do is to say, hey, uh, I'm going to do a two-point tracking here, which tracks both rotation and scaling, and ask the information. And here again, use the offset uh, reference mode to deal with the fact that I'm on the edge of the frame, uh, but I still want to track uh, how this uh, uh, the selection of point is actually going to move both in scaling and rotation as they leave the frame. And this is going to be tremendously useful to deal with anything that, again, um, enters the frame or leaves the frame, something that typically you would have not been able to deal with uh, uh, even in with bilinear uh, tracking, four-corner uh, four tracking, for example, right. would have been very problematic in that respect. So here, essentially, I can exit the tracker. And as you see, uh, it's kind of following the tracking data for both rotation and scaling. And uh, even though it may be a bit, uh, a bit weird uh, as it moves out of the frame here, because uh, so let me just add a G mask here to quickly uh, hide this. You'll see that uh, 
uh, very quickly as I as I move it, it, it kind of really mm -hmm. sticks to the frame. So we're actually combining here uh, two different techniques that actually generate tracking information for the vertices um, of the extended by cubic. So again, both modes are actually supported. And so the, the interesting thing here is that um, um, in order to deal with the edge artifacts, obviously, because this is just a single frame here. Uh, and this is only meant just to show the potential, really, of the, of the technique in one particular use case here. I'm just adding a G mask, really, to feather, uh, mm -hmm. to feather the edge of the, of the bicubic. Because uh, as you noticed, actually, the, uh, the cropping effect of the mesh is, is, is just brutal. I'm just going to do a, a, a quick shape tracking here. And this is going to allow me to really create like a very, um, a very quick feathering effect uh, to, uh, to blend the, uh, the single frame uh, that, I, uh, that I cleaned up. It'd be nice to have this G-mask as a, its own node in mesh. <laughs> uh, I completely agree, uh, and I can tell you actually that there's a there's a there's a plan for us to actually there's a reason why we introduced a new uh, a new GMAS model inside of Action, and and it's definitely on the radar for us to uh, to think about generalizing this to other areas of the application. So watch out for that uh, in future releases. So you see here, it's actually tracking quite well, uh, and the illusion is actually uh, pretty good uh, at that point. So also in, uh, in the 2014 release, uh, uh, we also introduced uh, uh, an entirely new type of surface, uh, which, uh, which may feel very, uh, uh, very familiar. Um, uh, it looks like a bilinear, but it's not a bilinear. It's actually a perspective surface. So I'm, I chose this shot where we have some perspective distortion that's going on here. And what I'm doing here is representing this, uh, this particular um, uh, um, media here where I have the graffiti uh, I'm adjusting the the UVs around one specific portion of the graffiti here and uh, my intention here is to go and stick it on uh, on uh, on one of these uh, upper balcony walls here that have very uh, heavy perspective distortion so as you see it's acting instantly uh, the UVs actually allow me to instantly crop the portion that I'm not interested in uh, and now I'm actually here mapping the four corners and don't be fooled this is not this is actually a perspective transformation that's happening so whatever is happening within the texture would be quite different with a bilinear and and actually the behavior if you were to track a bilinear with four corners for example uh, even though it also supports the whole UV things and the shape channel that we've seen with the extended by cubics you would still see the texture sliding uh, on top of it uh, because of just the very nature of the transformation that happens in the bilinear. So I enter the tracker here and I'm actually entering it in a special mode that's called perspective. And in perspective I can actually position my points pretty much where I want. Uh, and, and as you see here I'm, I'm not necessarily, so even though actually when I entered they were at the, the uh, four corners, uh, I'm gonna add extra trackers here and actually position them in the same plane where I want to actually uh, track my uh, graffiti. So I have six trackers How here. How many do you need? Um, well, the minimum is four, okay? And, and usually it's, it's, better to have, uh, it's better to have few good ones uh, than, than a lot of crappy ones. And so as you see here, um, uh, and the reason, uh, as you see here, it, it, it then tracks correctly the perspective uh, uh, grid. I'm gonna just uh, switch quickly to a, a different blend mode. Um, and the uh, and it kind of tracks uh, correctly. 
The perspective mode is also interesting because if you had anything like moving in and out of the frame, it would also uh, you know, work uh, very well. Um, uh, and here I'm still free uh, to actually make further tweaks because the perspective surface also has the user channels. So as you see, I'm kind of tweaking things so that it fits correctly between the two columns. But as I do so, I'm not upsetting anything about the tracking data. So it's the same kind of paradigm that we saw in the Extended by Cubics applied to perspective transformations. So in this particular example, I just want to illustrate some important changes about the behavior of the timeline that, that becomes also a very effective layering system. So um, one thing you'll see is that I have action that's directly accessible from the timeline. And as you see, we find here the setup the, that actually creates the, the, clean, the clean plate with the bottle uh, that uh, we saw earlier on. And so that's directly fitted inside of the timeline. And now I'm going to bring a series of uh, different layers that we will want to play with. And I'll extend them very quickly. Uh, uh, you see, I don't have to use repeat in the desktop. Just punch the number of frames I want. It extends. Um, activate the comp node, which we'll talk a bit about a, a bit more here. It's a new blending operator that's directly inside of the timeline. And as you see, everything blends live in the timeline, which is very different from what we had before. Uh, another another extra layer here, up, extend it, and I'm going to add the mat to that logo. Select it in the desktop, boop, and as you see, it instantly blends, uh, respecting uh, respecting the transparencies, and I can actually tweak my uh, my blend modes. The last one here, this logo, extend it again, just punch the number, and uh, get the mat on the desktop, and it blends instantly. Okay, so um, the other thing that I have here in, in the desktop is actually I, I, uh, uh, I actually have an effects clip that actually has the action setup of the, the, the track by Cubic. And as I just drop it in the timeline, you'll see that instantly that particular layer now tracks. If I enter the advanced editor, which is again the fully blown action, uh, you, uh, you will see that I have my extended by Cubic here that tracks. And I've just done a, a, a small trick here, which is to, to do a duplicate link between the axis of the, of the diffuse texture that I'm using uh, with the default surface that, uh, that the uh, timeline uh, action actually adds automatically for you. So the action, the action timeline effect adds a light and a surface. And because I, did, I created this uh, duplicate from the outside of, uh, of the effect, I, I'll be able to actually control it. So what I'm going to do is just quickly drag and drop it from one layer to the next. And as you'll see, uh, uh, as I just change the focus, automatically the Juiced Up logo is now following and inheriting the same action characteristics. Um, and because of the, uh, because of the uh, duplicate link that I have, directly from the timeline, you see that I can interactively adjust uh, how the texture is actually sliding and even adjust the lighting effect uh, directly looking at the player. So. I'm not using the timeline here as an editorial structure. I'm actually using it as a layering system that interactively shows me what's happening. Uh, and, uh, uh, and in some instances, it's actually a, a very fast way of dealing with certain problems. But when I want to take it to the next step, what I can do is actually uh, you know, select the entire stack and actually use Create BFX. And the very important change that happens in this release is that as I was doing my layering effects in the timeline, all along, I was actually building a batch flow graph. Uh, so there's a full equivalence between anything that I do within the timeline and things that will, and, and how things are actually constructed inside of batch. Because one is the other, it's just 
what we show, which is different. And as you see, now that I'm inside of batch, I will find all the different components that have been translated into nodes. So I still have my tracking uh, uh, to do the clean plate. I have my first, uh, my first layer here uh, with a lighting effect. Uh, and I can still uh, tweak it there. Uh, and as you see, every step that I did inside of the timeline has been translated kind of automatically uh, from the timeline representation into the batch representation. Now, this is typically a one-way street because there are things that you can represent in the flow graph that cannot be represented in a timeline. But effectively, uh, there are things that you can do very, very quickly in a timeline representation. And it's not editorial that I'm talking about. It's look management, look development that then can be carried further into the batch environment where you can deal with a lot more complex stuff. Well, thanks for walking us through some of those new creative features. Now, for this last part of the segment, we've tried the first thing ever, and that's getting questions from our readers and viewers via social media. And we're going to start with a subject that's near and dear to my heart, and that's GPU. Uh, NVIDIA just introduced uh, the Quadro K6000. Uh, it seems like the perfect card for Flame. What's the prognosis for that? Well, it's just a matter of time, I guess, before, uh, you know, um, it, uh, it actually gets supported. I mean, of course, we're, we're uh, always actually looking at, uh, at new graphics boards, and the K6000, of course, is something that we're closely looking into. Um, I think for, for us also, we, um, we're also at a turning point in how we're going to deal with broadcast monitoring in general. Now, um, people may not be necessarily aware of this, but we've been gradually putting into flame the ability also to monitor through the Aja board, kind of like Smoke on the Mac has been dealing with it from the very beginning. Um, but there's the RTD component of it that needs to be figured out, and there's a number of options for that. When you're speaking of that because NVIDIA has stopped developing support for the SDI daughter card of the quadro. Correct, exactly. So, uh, uh, so it's, it's something that we have been kind of anticipating, and, and so gradually putting um, some functionality to be able to, uh, to use the, uh, the, uh, the Aja board, for example, as a, as a monitoring solution. But um, we also need to figure out how to actually deal with the RTD component, uh, which was typically handled through the GPU and handed over to the SDI daughter board. So there's a number of options for us that we're uh, investigating. But you know, that's, that's, I guess, the, uh, the, um, the thing that stops us from making it just a plug and play type of, of replacement uh, in this particular in this particular case, but uh, um, as I said, this is something that we're we're um, uh, closely looking into uh, as we speak. You mentioned performance. Uh, Brian Higgins brought up the note about the performance speed on the new iMacs compared to certain versions of Linux Flame, where the iMac is actually faster. As part of the 2014 uh, beta process, you actually did find some bottlenecks related to that, didn't you? Yeah, so I think the, the threads that were uh, uh, you know, happening in Flame News and, and to some extent also uh, uh, during the beta program actually uh, uh, kind of pushed us also to kind of really uh, uh, revisit some areas of the code. Um, and our uh, 2014 actually takes some steps into, uh, uh, so we've identified a number of things that were uh, probably slowing down uh, uh, Flame to some extent. Uh, so in the 2014 release, for example, we allow people to uh, decide whether or not they want to decouple, uh, for example, the VSync uh, settings, uh, which uh, causes Flame to actually wait to be allowed to display a frame. Um, uh, so this is something that we, we, we've made optional. Um, as a consequence, you know, processes that could be faster than real time 
uh, would actually instantly run as fast as they can. Um, a consequence would be that, you know, as you're looking at the process frames, you would see a little bit of tearing, which does not result because in the Because before it was waiting for each frame to render, displaying it, exactly. rendering the next one. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly what was happening. And uh, for anything that could run faster than real time, well, obviously, you're kind of like limited by really the, the frequency of your vSync, you know. Um, so for anything that could run faster than that, uh, it would not be allowed. So this is something that we've, uh, we've removed that, uh, that kind of... Uh, uh, kind of intentional behavior now that the application is actually capable of, of performing quite a few things a lot faster than it did before, it, uh, the effect of it was becoming more and more obvious. So this is something that we've made optional. There's also some, uh, you know, we're also investigating um, uh, improvements to the driver actually that uh, uh, we, we believe also are responsible for some of the performance differences that, that people noticed. Um, and of course, I mean, there's still a generational effect uh, that happens. Like, uh, you know, iMacs actually have, you know, Kepler boards on them, and so it, they're quite they're quite fast. But as I said, we're we've been actually really closely monitoring some areas of the code and revisiting them uh, to make sure that the the Linux products are as fast as they can be. We've been talking about Luster and color grading in Flame for a couple of years now since its inclusion in Flame Premium, and and one of the posters on Facebook bluntly asks. When are we going to see Luster as a tab within Flame? Um, so um, that's uh, a very good question. And the first thing that I want to say is that um, people should not necessarily expect something as trivial, um, I'll quote trivial, as putting a Luster tab uh, inside of Flame. Um, I think that what we're very interested in is figuring out how a collection of tools, amongst which color tools can fit into a workflow that ultimately allows you to deal with anything that pertains to the look of your image in the context of the story. Um, so, um, and that does not necessarily mean we're going to put luster inside of flame. It means what we're interested in is putting a workflow that inherits a lot of the um, uh, strengths that you have inside of a grading application like luster but um, tie this into a bigger tool set, which is the one that we have inside of Flame, uh, because it would considerably expand the, the range of things that you could do in a story-centric environment that could affect the look of an image. So, so the intention is not necessarily to reproduce luster inside of Flame, but the intention is very much to figure out how we integrate components of grading workflows inside of a finishing application because we see them on a collision course uh, right now. Um, uh, so that's, that's just to, to clarify some of, our, some of our intentions. And I think the, the best example that I can give um, is, you know, you could, you could say that in the 20th anniversary workflow overhaul that we made, we brought key functionality of smoke and key functionality of flame together, but what we produced is quite different from either. Uh, you should expect something very similar uh, when it comes to the integration of grading inside of, inside of flame. So there's no question that we're heading in that direction, uh, but it's not gonna be as trivial as just, you know, plugging luster inside of flame and say, hey, that's done, we're done, uh, because I don't think we would have moved the needle quite that much if we just did that. Um, so that process is something that is um, 
ongoing, but it's very hard for me to tell you when, and even if I could, <laughs> it would still be very challenging for me to say, oh, we know that on this date we're, we're going to have it. Um, the only thing that I can tell you is that this is something that's very important to us. Well, that's it for our coverage from the Flame Awards here at IBC 2013. Let's head on back to the studio in Sydney and Angie. Thanks, John. And we have more great shows coming up. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, then please contact us. You can do this by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fxguide or via Twitter. Well, that's it for this week. So until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.